nobody wants to be pitied. And I think there are other instances where maybe a person will try to protect an individual who they know has mental and emotional disorders from stress. In trying to protect you, end up isolating. And it does more damage than good. Over-sympathy that turns into pity and paternalization is problematic as well. That is the voice of Dr. Christy Stringer, medical sociologist, postdoctoral research scientist, Columbia University. She joins me today to discuss ableism, lived experience, and drug use stigma. You're listening to the podcast with John C. Lemon. Dr. Stringer, welcome. Thank you for having me. From your dissertation, could you describe mixed method design and drug use stigma? Mixed method design is the combination of quantitative surveys data with qualitative data like interviews or focus groups. Substance use stigma is the marginalization, the stereotypes, in and around substance use and substance abuse, something that has always been stigmatized. It is perpetrated in individual relationships to personal, all socioecological levels within institutions, with societies as a whole, and within healthcare environments. There are I think seven different models of mixed methods design. Mine was a sequential, meaning I did quantitative followed by qualitative, a sequential explanatory design. The qualitative that followed the quantitative was there to explain the results that we found with the quantitative surveys. I had looked at the relationship between, so my population were people who use drugs, mostly crack cocaine, and people who also were living with HIV. The relationship between both HIV and substance use stigma and HIV health-related behaviors, medication adherence and retention and care, what I found in the first portion of the study in the quantitative portion was that HIV stigma was fairly low in my population, but the substance use stigma was high. And that substance use stigma impacted these health outcomes, whereas HIV stigma didn't. So the qualitative portion really sought to understand that relationship. I remember when HIV was a major scare in this country, So we've gone from HIV not being the scare it was and substance abuse has replaced that. How would you explain that? I will say that my participants were recruited from an HIV clinic. 
People don't know you have HIV unless you tell them you have HIV or unless someone else tells them on your behalf. Whereas frequently, and this depends on the drug, your drug use can often be public. And so my participants explained that their neighbors would see them going to purchase drugs at three in the morning. Drug use may cause more erratic behaviors. It may, because of medications with HIV. Now, when we had wasting syndrome for ARTs, then it was more of a physical, visible stigma. But now it really is something that you have to be informed about. Whereas drug use can be a visible stigma. Even within HIV stigma, so some of my previous research and, and some of the research that I do now, looking at healthcare providers' willingness to provide services for people living with HIV. And this is true for any type of marginalization. Even within the, the column of HIV, there is a hierarchy in there. So there is this idea that people who got it heterosexually or, or blood transfusion, they are maybe blameless. And then you have people who got it from same-sex interactions. And then you have sex work. And then all the way at the bottom, you have people who use drugs. And so even among people living with HIV, the people who use drugs are the ones that are the most stigmatized. And there's a great article I remember reading early in my studies. I don't remember the full title. After the colon, it said, a stigmatized and stigmatizing population. There is, again, a hierarchy where, you know, casual cocaine use is at one level. And we see that reflected in our laws where crack cocaine, same drug, but cheaper and used by a different population, was punished a hundred times more harshly. How would you address the issue of this stigmatization? Can we address it? I know it's a greater societal issue. It would be a massive undertaking to undo. And with my research participants, several of them said the children are the worst. The children will call you a crackhead. That hurts more than anything. And so if that tells you how deeply it's ingrained in our society, we are definitely making steps that direction with talking about how journalists report on drug use talking about how it is portrayed in TV. It's becoming a little more realistic. We spoke earlier about alternatives to AA, and you have a lived experience. What would you recommend and why? AA saved my life. 12-step programs do work for a lot of people. However, they don't work for a lot of people. Because of their anonymous nature, they've not lended themselves to study. But we do see that 12-step programs are about as effective as white knuckling is. Every mode of recovery has about a 30% efficacy rate. But there are alternatives. There is smart recovery, 
which is evidence-based, it's cognitive behavioral. Another one that I really like, although the founder had some issues a few years ago, I no longer support the founder, but I do like the way that they approach recovery. It's called Refuge Recovery. Smart Recovery and Refuge Recovery, they both steer away from announcing yourself or, you know, this over-identification with, you know, my name is Christy and I'm an alcoholic. We also discussed earlier that I think that that over-identification can sometimes be harmful. You know, it creates this internal stigma and it also creates this very black and white view of what a person who may want to utilize these services. There are also Christian-based groups called Celebrate Recovery, which I cannot speak on because I've not had any experience with them. You know, the country right now is suffering from an opioid epidemic. We do have medications to reduce the mortality and morbidity related to opioid use disorder. Initially, you know, we had methadone and that had its own stigma. There's a lot of this idea that you're just replacing one drug with another or, you know, now it's just state sanction drugs. And chemically, methadone was pretty similar to heroin. But now we have Suboxone, we have Buprenorphine, we have Naloxone, and these medications are extremely effective at reducing opioid use, reducing HIV-related risk, increasing retention in substance use care and medical care in general. But although I hear that Heroin Anonymous may be a little more open, stereotypes of you're just replacing one drug with another seem to be amplified in regards to opioid use disorder that some of the 12-step programs are doing more harm than good. Something I'm borrowing from you in a communication that we had previously. We value people with lived experiences until those lived experiences become an inconvenience. What do you mean by until those experiences become an inconvenience? Within funding bodies, within universities, we've really started to talk about the importance of community-based participatory research. One of the keys is to have people with lived experience. This is particularly important with substance using populations, populations impacted by the criminal justice system. We say that we value this more than almost anything. However, communities that experience any form of stigma, discrimination, marginalization, whether it is sexual orientation related, criminal justice involvement, mental illness, drug use, all of these are much more likely to inconvenient. It's a a reasonable assumption that someone who 
maybe has a history of sex work or someone who has a history of drug use or a history of violence, gender-based violence. Now, that person may also experience PTSD, anxiety, they may experience depression. Those things just don't seem to be compatible. I like to say everybody loves an underdog until the underdog has underdog problems. And the reality is, if we really value people with lived experience, we have to value their experiences. And their experiences are ones that might inconvenience others. Carl Hart, who is a psychology professor there at Columbia University, a colleague of yours, recently was in the news for drug use. When he does talk about it, he is talking about heroin, which is one of the most stigmatizing. Been a daily heroin user for about five years. At night, you know, when his partner or, or his friends are having a glass of wine, he might snort a little bit of heroin. How do we determine who can do this recreationally and who cannot? I teach sociology of drug and alcohol use. This is my opinion, and Dr. Hart may disagree. And as a neuroscientist with lived experience, I would listen to whatever he had to say. And all too often, and it began with Reagan, Nancy Reagan, and, and just say no. We ignore that there may be any positive effects. And that's another thing that Dr. Hart mentions in his book. It does help you relax, just like alcohol does. And if we completely ignore completely ignore that and we just say, no, this is bad, it's terrible. And then when someone experiments and they find something different than what we've been telling them, then they're not going to believe the other things we're telling them. You introduced me to a friend of yours. He is no longer at the university where he was a participant, where he was employed because of the discovery of an undisclosed criminal background. His position as a board member on a community program. The community program was designed to help people in the criminal justice system. It was to help with uh, criminal justice reform. It was to help people who have been impacted by the criminal justice system maybe get back on the right track. Here we are in a situation where we have brought someone on because we value the experience that he brings to the table in our ability to address this pressing concern. But it became inconvenient. People started calling. People made a big deal about it to the extent that it began to draw attention away from all of the good that they were doing. So that's why I say until it becomes an inconvenience. Just like Carl Hart, making this national, I don't know how the university has responded to him, but I have offered to lend my unapologetic voice should he need someone to, to back him up. Carl Hart's work has been talking about 
these discussions that we need to have for so long. And he's been highly awarded. One of his movies is a Netflix hit this month. And his work is not a secret within the university. But now that it's public, there's all this backlash. It's becoming an inconvenience. So at this point, the only argument would be not because you use drugs, but because you told everyone. Carl Hart isn't an anomaly. Talk to me a little bit about ableism. As you remarked, I do have an impressive CV. I tell people all the time, I look great on paper. I'm a great scientist. I know what I'm doing, but I do have a very difficult time, partially due to these disorders, partially due to my background as someone who grew up with in an environment that was impoverished. I struggle with panic attacks. I struggle with emotion dysregulation. These environments where we are valuing people with lived experience are not set up for people with lived experience. You know, whether it's substance use, whether it's mental illness, it's not okay to have problems with emotional regulation. It's not okay to have a panic attack and have to ask to step away. I had to take a medical leave from work and there's a lot of paternalism involved with that. There are things that were asked of me that would not have been asked of someone who had to take off of work for chemotherapy. Because I am open with my experience, I'm unapologetic about who I am because it does make me who I am. Colleagues throughout various positions who have shared with me that they maybe had to go into rehab or maybe had to go in or mental health hospitalization who put that off until it was a time that was most convenient for their higher-ups or who didn't feel that they could be open about it. And I think it's very dangerous to, particularly in the field of substance use research, people who have recovered from addiction often go into fields of substance use. Substance use disorders are, they're chronic. People do experience relapses and not being able to openly discuss those, even in these environments, is very dangerous for people with lived experiences who are trying to function. How can we legitimize the hire of people such as yourself? I think that we have to make sure that we are prepared for the experience of people with lived experience, even in very, very progressive institutions that really do want to bring in people from diverse backgrounds, that the structure is not ready. We spoke before that, you know, it's not so much my history of drug use that impacts my work so much as I don't know the right sort to use. You know, we need to make sure if we are purposely recruiting first-generation college students 
or first-generation college professors, in my case. We do do this with students, or at least most progressive universities have systems set up in place to help students learn to navigate academia and how to email professors and such. But it doesn't seem to be that in higher education if you become an employee of higher education. There's no guidance on how to navigate these power differentials. There's no guidance as to, I think that we need to recognize that these supports that we put in place for students have to be brought into the institution as a whole, into the employment realm. Regarding ableism, and I can only speak for disabilities related to mental and emotional disorders. I can't speak to physical disorders. Invisible marginalization seemed to be the last ones addressed. I had a situation where I was struggling. I ended up being hospitalized. And in trying to find care, I needed to let work know that this was going on. And the next day, I'll I'll never forget, I was talking to my mom. I talked to my mom every morning, very close. I was pouring coffee, and she said, Christy, I have to tell you something. So-and-so called me yesterday, and my mouth just dropped. So-and-so is a person in the administration. I appreciate the sentiment, but that type of behavior... It just feels so disrespectful. It's embarrassing and stigmatizing enough than to feel like my power is being taken away from me. My autonomy is being taken away from me. In my research, one of my participants stated, he was talking about interactions with doctors and and his struggles with drug use. Even the ones who want to help you. They pity you. And who wants that? Nobody wants to be pitied. And that has really stuck with me. And I think there are other instances where maybe a person will try to protect an individual who they know has mental and emotional disorders from stress. In trying to protect, you end up isolating, and it causes more damage than good. And so I would return to this participant over sympathy that turns into pity and paternalization is problematic as well. Sounds like we have a great deal of work to do. Thank you for your openness, your transparency, and joining me for today's conversation. Thank you. I really enjoyed this, and I, and I hope we do continue to have these conversations. Dr. Christy Stringer, medical sociologist, postdoctoral research scientist, Columbia University. For additional information on ableism and drug use stigma, visit socialwork.columbia.edu. <laughs> That's our podcast for today. I'm John C. Lemon. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.